Matthew 6, 1 through 4. Take heed that ye do not your alms before men to be seen of them, otherwise ye have no reward of your Father which is in heaven. Therefore, when thou doest thine alms, do not sound a trumpet before thee as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may have glory of men. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. But when thou doest alms, let not thy left hand know what thy right hand doeth, that thine alms which that thine alms may be in secret, and thy father which seeth in secret himself shall reward thee openly. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would open it to us this morning. Help us to understand it. Help it to speak to us in deep and profound ways, Lord. Would you show us what your word means, and then would you help us to live out your word every day? We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We finally come to the close of the first chapter of the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 5, that begins with the Beatitudes and goes on to describe Jesus' radical teaching on six different things where, where Jesus contrasts the righteousness that God is expecting of his covenant community with the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, where Jesus describes a kind of radical community of faith that lives a different kind of life than the world around them. Uh, Jesus speaks to them about um, the way that uh, a Christian, a, a follower of Jesus, a kingdom kind of person is to deal with anger and hatred, the way that they're to speak of other people. Jesus talks to them about the way a Christian deals with lust and the way a Christian sees uh, the opposite sex, the way we deal with that kind of issue. Jesus talks to them about divorce and what his teachings are related to that. He talks to them about truth and honesty and and speaking truth, about forgiveness and about loving our enemies. And Jesus has described this this radical community and closes with the words that we mentioned two weeks ago, be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. Earlier, he'd said that the, the disciples and followers of Jesus were to have Greater righteousness, their righteousness was to exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. So Jesus has described for them radical holy living. But then he takes a a little bit of a turn in the sixth chapter, in the, the next section of the Sermon on the Mount. And what I believe Jesus is responding to is a temptation that enters in a community of faith when they choose to begin radically living out Jesus' words. There's a danger that happens. And it was a danger that was put on display in the lives of the scribes and the Pharisees. I think I've mentioned this to you all before, but I'll I'll do it again, okay? So for those of you that are sitting here, when I, if I called you a Pharisee, is that a compliment or is that a kind of a a diss? It's kind of a diss, isn't it? To say someone's really Pharisaical, it's not a nice thing to say about somebody at all. And if I stood up here and said, you know, Thing, something I'm very grateful about our church is that our church is so full of Pharisees. <laughs> would not sound like a compliment, would it? But the people that Jesus is preaching to, the people that Jesus is talking to and teaching his law to, that is not how they would see Pharisee at all. In fact, to them, it was the highest compliment you could give somebody. It was kind of synonymous when we say somebody is a saint. That's what they would think of, a Pharisee. Isn't that a strange thing? And it, 
in order for us to understand Jesus' words when he comes to chapter 6, and when he talks about hypocrisy, it would be important for us to understand the framework that the people that Jesus is preaching to understood Pharisees inside of, and the reason why Jesus' teaching is different than the Pharisees. Let's push rewind, go back to the Old Testament, and remember that the children of Israel, about 500 years before Jesus has come, about five to 600 years before, um, the children of Israel have been taken into captivity, and they recognize that the reason why they went into captivity, the reason why they, they were uh, taken away from their land and sent off into exile was because of their disobedience to God's law. They had not obeyed the law of God. So when they come back into the land, and this happens in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, they come back to the land, they rebuild the temple, they're determined that they will never go into exile again, that they're going to dwell in the land, they're going to walk in obedience to God, and if that's going to happen, they're going to have to pay close attention to the law of God. So these, this national this nation of people that had always taken a really easygoing view to the law, in fact, had spent most of their time disobeying the law over and over again and disregarding it over and over again and falling into idolatry over and over again where they would set up idols even in the very temple of God. The kings of Israel would set up idols. These people began, became the most thoroughgoing monotheists on the planet and became deeply invested in obedience to the law of God. In fact, they developed this deep tradition during their exile in the nation of Babylon. They developed this tradition of, of parsing out every word of the law to make certain that they're following it. As I've mentioned before, they developed, in fact, hundreds of laws about how they could best obey the command to keep the Sabbath day holy literally hundreds of laws about this. They had developed volumes of traditions that are now called the Talmud that explain and commentate on the law in the Old Testament to make certain that they're obeying the law perfectly so that they'll never be cast from the land. But what's happened in that are two things. First of all, Jesus has attacked already the fact that while they claim to be following the letter of the law, Jesus points out to them that again and again, they've grown more interested in their traditions than they are in genuine obedience. This is very important because as a church, we are a conservative church. We do our best to obey what God's law has to say. So when Jesus speaks to the Pharisees, realize this, Jesus is speaking to them about weaknesses that we ourselves could have. Are you with me? Do you follow that? So when Jesus talks to them about their hypocrisy, it's easy for us to say, oh, that's the way they did it, but we would never fall into that. But these are the exact errors that we can fall into ourselves. Jesus, first of all, points out that while they're very in, interested in obeying the law as it's been handed down to them through the traditions of the elders, what's actually happened is that they have negated the law of God because they're so interested in following human traditions. That's in fact, what he's dealing with every time he says, you have heard it said, but I say unto you, that little phrase, you have heard it said, is dealing with the tradition that the elders have handed down. At one point, the um, scribes and Pharisees say to Jesus later in Matthew's gospel, they say to Jesus, why do, your, why do your disciples not wash their hands? 
And they set, set aside the tradition of the elders. And Jesus said, why do you set aside the law of God? And then he points out to them where they're actually disobeying God's law. They, they've become the kind of people that, remember what Jesus says about them? They strain out a gnat and then swallow a camel. And the more that we fixate on what isn't there in the law of God, the more likely it is that we miss what God is actually asking of us. That's what's happened in chapter 5, but chapter 6 is a little bit different focus that Jesus is coming to, and that's the fact that in the same way that, that we can become focused on traditions that have been handed down to us that might be important, they might matter, but they're not inspired and they're not God's word, and we need to hold them maybe carefully but loosely. Do you understand what I'm saying? We need to be careful how much we impress others with our traditions. We need to be careful about how much we mix mix the gospel into those traditions. We make sure that we keep the pure gospel. But in in the next chapter and what we're dealing with this morning, Jesus talks about how that our faith can become externalized. It can become a performance for others instead of being about pleasing God. In a day that's visual and, uh, and social media and all the things that we deal with today, we can fall into the same error that the scribes and Pharisees fell into that Jesus is dealing with right here. The, the passage that we read this morning is the beginning of three sections where Jesus deals with alms, which is giving to charity or giving to the poor, prayer, and fasting. Jesus did not highlight these three things because they're the most important acts of piety or spiritual exercises that we can can have. Jesus highlighted these three things because they were the most important religious exercises that the scribes and Pharisees were focused on in the day that Jesus is preaching to. Um, Fasting was definitely part of Judaism, and it's something that's historically been part of Christianity, but it wasn't the most important thing. And we have to make sure that we, it's important that not only do we hold all of what the scripture holds it, but we hold it with the same emphasis that the scripture gives. So for example, the the Jews were commanded to fast one day every year. But remember that when Jesus gives the parable of the scribes and the, or the Pharisee and the publican that go to the temple, remember that one of the things the publican says about himself is that he fasts twice a week. So he's fasting a hundred times more than he's actually expected to. He's commanded to fast one day a year. He fasts a hundred times a year. And Jesus is pointing out in this, these passages when it relates to almsgiving, to prayer, and to fasting. He's trying to correct their moral behavior, their sensibility. In other words, he's not telling them not to do what they're doing. He's not telling them don't give to the poor, don't pray, and don't fast. He's correcting the wrong ways in which they're exercising their righteousness. And what he's concerned about should concern us. What Jesus is worried about, he says to them, beware or take heed that you do not your alms before men. That's what he says. His warning boils down to this. I'm not worried that you're giving alms. I like that. The Old Testament emphasizes over and over and it's this recurring theme of giving to the poor, of, of taking care of the needy. But he says, I want you to worry about how you're doing it because 
your practice of righteousness, and this is how it relates to us today, the Pharisees had developed a system of outward practices, a checklist, so to speak, of moral behaviors that so long as they were doing those things, they didn't need to worry about their hearts. Is that ever a danger that we might fall into? In a world that is full of open sin, can we correct the outside and forget the inside? I believe that we can. And that's what Jesus is concerned about. He says, beware that you don't do your alms before men to be seen of them. So what Jesus is concerned about is is not about doing it where other people can see it. Because there's times where good must be done. And when we pass around the offering plate, I hope that none of you go, well, I don't want to put anything in because someone might see me put that in. Now, if you want to give it secretly, that's, that's perfectly fine. But, but make sure that we are doing good. And sometimes when we do good, we have to do it and other people see it. It's just the nature of how it happens. But Jesus is worried about their motives about the reason why they're doing things. Jesus is warning them about the danger of the praise of men. And until we begin to recognize how hungry our hearts are for people to think well of us, we won't be able to to apply what Jesus is saying to our own lives. We'll look through this list and we're like, I can't imagine. Uh, can, can Can you imagine like, you really want to give to the homeless that are on our street corners. So when they're walking up, you make sure that you honk your horn a few times so that everybody can turn towards you. Then you roll your window down, and then you hold out maybe a $100 bill because you want everybody to know how much you're giving to the homeless. And you hold it out and honk your horn a couple more times before you hand it to them. Can you ima- anybody here imagine doing that? It would kind of feel ostentatious and showy and kind of weird, right? You'd be like, what? This is weird. This is strange. Um, but this is actually a practice, something sort of like that, that the scribes and Pharisees would do. They would literally sound the trumpets before them, before they would give. Um, they had another habit when we get to the section on prayer uh, later on, um, where because the Pharisees would pray three times a day, morning and then at noon and then in the evening, they, they had this habit of of going out and making sure that they, they found themselves in the middle of the marketplace when it came time for prayer. And so they just happened to be in the marketplace, and they would kind of find themselves in an elevated place, you know, kind of walk up some steps, and then they'd hold their hands out and make sure that everybody could see how pious and prayerful they were so everybody could see that they were praying. And deep in their hearts, Jesus is diagnosing a heart condition when he says, you're doing this to be seen of men. They're becoming so concerned about other people's opinion of them, so concerned that other people see what they're doing or not doing, that it's begun to poison their their piety or poison their practice of, of moral behavior. And Jesus says, beware that there isn't something in your heart that hungers for other people's approval for your behavior. And I think when we think about it in that way, I believe when we think in that way, it allows us to apply this passage of Scripture to the world that we live in. Separated by 2,000 years, 
And in fact, Jesus is speaking to Jews in this time that are practicing Judaic forms of their faith, and we're Christians. Uh, Jesus is founding Christianity, in fact, with this sermon in a sense. There's, this is, Jesus is the founder of our Christian faith, but realize he's speaking across to people that have a, there's a, there's a correlation, but then there's still a difference, right? And their, their practice of faith is radically different. They're scrupulously following a law that you and I follow in a very different sort of way. But yet there are things that Jesus said that apply deeply to the world that we live in right now. A world of Instagram posts and tweets and retweets and Facebook updates. And a world where our lives are broadcast around us to a degree that people 50 or 100 years ago would have found almost frightening. And some of you still find frightening today. A world where... It's normal for people to, to take an Instagram or a Snapchat story of their meal that they're getting ready to eat. Uh, a, a world where that's, I mean, yes, we may make fun of them a little bit, but it doesn't keep people from doing that, right? Lots and lots of people, judging by uh, how funny that joke can be. Because for some people, that's normal. It's normal to take selfies. And, and in fact, in, in some circles, I don't, I don't know if there's anybody here that does this. So that's why I'm glad that I'm not even on there to see what people post or don't post because I don't want to be preaching at you, but I do want to preach to you and to where you live. But there are some people that, that for them every day uh, or occasionally an Instagram of their Bible, their coffee, and their highlighters to advertise their devotional life is a normal and acceptable practice. What do you think Jesus would say about that? Now, if that isn't your practice, recognize, I promise you, that deep in your heart, there are things that we do and there are ways that we do those things that we do so that people will see it. That's the way we're wired. There's something deep in our hearts that longs for people's approval. God has made us to want approval, and because There's this distance from God, and the more distance we feel from God, the more we're tempted to fall into this, that we begin to want to pray so that other people see us, and they think well of us. We want to do the good things that we do in a way that other people can see what we're doing. And what Jesus is saying is that that begins to poison the very roots of our spiritual life. It changes Because Jesus says about this, that if you are doing things to get people's approval, then all the reward you get is people's approval. Remember the statement Jesus makes later when when Peter cuts off the ear of the high priest servant and Jesus says, put away your sword. Those who live by the sword die by the sword. I'm going to paraphrase that a little bit to apply it to this passage. Do you know that people that live by men's approval, will die by men's approval? You know that if you do the things that you're doing to get the approval of the people around you, you'll stop doing those things if people stop approving of those. Right? How often do we see someone radically change their lifestyle, even their belief system, because they recognized people don't like what I was doing? We're right now living in a moment when high-profile people that at one point stood for Jesus and stood for righteousness and stood for holiness are now changing 
And the reason is that the world no longer approves of the kind of message that we're preaching. I'm not, I'm not giving you that as a sob story for us. I'm saying let's be realistic and recognize that the fact of what Jesus is pointing to is that when our hearts wrap up with the praise of people, when we live the way we live, when we make choices to gain the approval of people around us, then we're willing to change those choices to gain those people's approval. And this, this principle is... is uh, stitched through every single area of our lives. It, it comes out in the way that we talk. We censor ourselves or we adjust our language because we want the approval of the people around us. How many people have, have begun a bad habit or started uh, developing a filthy mouth because they were hanging out with a crowd of people that they knew getting those people's approval would mean adjusting their language and their habits. And years later, it's a lot harder to quit than it is to start, right? Of a lot of these kind of things, right? And what can happen is that our hearts become wrapped up with how other people look at us. It's easy for us to point to or look to this person or that person. I, I, I don't want to highlight an individual in a way that's embarrassing, but Bob has told us that He's praying, he's wanting us as a church to pray for him that he'll be able to stop smoking his cigars. Now, that's something that Bob has shared with me. I didn't talk to Bob or preach at him about his, to be honest with you, of all the things that there's a lot of things that we shouldn't be doing. And we can look and say, well, Bob, you shouldn't be, you shouldn't be smoking your cigars. I'll be glad when Bob's able to get over that. But, you know, there's a lot of things that people can do with their mouths that are habits they fall into, habits of gossip or perversion filthy talking and speech that becomes a habit, a pattern of life that isn't compatible with the gospel. It just doesn't fit together. Why do people do those things? Do you know why they do them? They do them to be seen of men. Many, many times we do it because we want other people to think a certain thing about us or to see us in a certain way. We laugh at the joke or we go along with the gossip. And the reason is we don't want people to think badly of us. And Jesus says we can do the same thing with our good deeds, with the good things. Now these, I've been talking about vices, about bad things that we can even fall into because we want other people to look at us. But Jesus says, be careful that your almsgiving, that the giving that you do to the poor, that you don't do it just to be seen of men. Because if you do, you've had your reward. Jesus is saying this, if you're living for people's reward, people's reward is all the rewards you will get. As I was studying for this and I was, I was thinking and meditating on it, my mind went back to uh, a story that I heard about Wilt Chamberlain. Um, in fact, the context of the story, they were talking about the fact that, um, I don't know what the statistics are, but uh, if, a, if a professional ball player can hit, a professional basketball player can hit like what, 75 or 80% of his free throws, he's a very good free throw shooter. But do you know that every single professional ball player could shoot better free throws if they really wanted to? Do you know that? If they wanted to shoot better free throws more than anything else, they could shoot better free throws. And there'd just be one small change to make, and they could shoot better free throws. If they would just stop shooting like this overhand, and they would start 
doing, we call it the granny shot. You remember the granny shot, like the underhand, two hand, just hitch it up. Will Chamberlain was one of the greatest basketball players of his era. Um, and the game where he, I believe, if I'm remembering the details correctly, the game where he shot the most, made the most shots he ever made in his entire career, he did that because he decided that night, for reasons we don't fully understand, to shoot grannies on his free throws that whole evening. And he, I don't think, missed a free throw that night. I don't remember every single detail, understand. But the point is that, that here's Wilt Chamberlain, underhand, tossing that ball into the net. Why do you think someone like that, when they know... What's the point of playing basketball? It's to win games, right? That's the purpose. Why wouldn't he keep shooting underhanded? It looks stupid. Wilt Chamberlain's famous for more than just playing professional basketball. He's also one of the most famous ladies' men in basketball history. Um, Some of the stories he told are actually difficult to believe because of the numbers of ladies he says that he was with in his years of basketball. And uh, Malcolm Gladwell at least posits a theory that the reason why Wilt Chamberlain shot his free throws overhand, even though he could make a lot more shots underhanded, is because he was actually more interested in uh, picking up women than he was at winning basketball games. Now, Alan Jacobs, he kind of pushes back on that, and he says, he says, really, if that were just so, then why, doesn't, why don't ballplayers today do it? And he says, at the end of the day, people don't want to look funny. We don't want to look silly, and so we choose not to shoot underhanded basketball shots. How does that apply to our lives today? Well, it, it fits right like this. When we're talking about our righteousness, what is your purpose? Is it to win games, or is it to bring the appraise and applause of men? And it made me think of so often, it's almost like a cliche that in professional sports, if you get too many superstars on one team, the team doesn't play as well. And why is that? Well, it's because for a superstar, it's, uh, there's a tug of war between wanting the team to win and wanting to win. Whether I want to get the most shots and I want to look good on the stat board or whether I want my team to win. And the, what... What comes is this, uh, the idea of the ball hog or the, 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 uh, the guy that just doesn't play good team sports. For you and I in our lives, this is what it looks like. When we have a tug of war between people's approval and God's approval, between whether we're more concerned with what God sees or what people around us see. I heard just a beautiful story about a a man that was working uh, as a he was working at a train station, and uh, as he worked there at the train station, um, up and down the aisles and and uh, in and out of the the uh, serving and, and working there, and he was just whistling and happy. And some of the customers weren't pleased with him. Some of them were fine. Some of them were less happy. But he whistled and smiled no matter what. And one of the one of the uh, one of the passengers said, why, why do you seem so happy? The train at this point is sitting there in the station, and he points out to the overseer up in his office, and he said, you see that man up there? He said, there's a man up there that's, that's my boss. And he said, you know, he's the only person I have to make happy today. He's the only one I'm worried about. Do you see the illustration? What it is, 
when we become more conscious and aware of the fact that we're not to be nearly as nearly as fixated on the pleasing the people around us as we are with pleasing God. How does God see us? Um, the the one of the resources that I drew on as I prepared this message put it like this: that God calls us to build a house of holiness, a life that pleases God. And the roof that covers this house is our knowledge of the all-seeing eye of God, the fact that God sees and knows all. And that covers and protects this house. If it weren't there, it would be unprotected and it would be damaged or destroyed by the, the, the winds of change, the storms of people's opinion. But that knowledge... That roof that hangs over our house protects and guards because God sees everything. He knows our innermost thoughts. He sees and knows the motives of our heart. He knows what really drives us. He knows about those of you that deep in your hearts are making choices and decisions that are solely uh, focused on pleasing God, even though others may look around you and kind of blow you off, God sees your heart. He also sees those that everything on the outside looks good, everything's lined up, but deep in their hearts, there's a, there's a decay that's begun because they're more interested in pleasing people than pleasing God. And the scripture tells us right here that we need to be focused on our Father who sees in secret. Did you see that? Verse 4, do your alms in secret so that your Father who sees in secret. God sees and knows. And part of time in prayer, quietness, meditation, study of God's word, coming to church to hear the word taught and taking time to to, uh, apply the word of God to our hearts, part of that is to get quiet enough to allow God to begin a diagnosis, to help us to see who we really are what really matters to us and what we really care about. Our Father sees in secret. And if we would live that out, do you know that that would transform us as a congregation? It would eliminate every shred of hypocrisy. There'd be no fakeness, no falseness. If we genuinely came to a moment where we were more concerned about God's opinion than anything else, how can we tell that things aren't like that? How, how, do, how are we able to diagnose when we're kind of more concerned about people's opinion? One of the ways, when we realize that it makes us angry or we feel slighted when people don't see what we do, right? When we do something and nobody notices and something in our heart goes, Ugh, I don't like that. You know, the scripture actually tells us that when we're working at our workplace, in our occupation, that we're to do our work as if we're doing it to God. Do you know that makes it easier for us to bear the slight of a boss who doesn't recognize our, our industry and our, our care for our work? If we realize, oh, my boss, my fake boss doesn't realize, my, my earthly boss, but my father who I'm really working for, for, my father in heaven, he knows what I'm doing. He sees and I can bear it. 
I've shared this story with you some time back. I'll try not to butcher it quite as badly as I did last time. I've told you all before, I don't know football very well at all. <laughs> but the details I know of this story are two teams playing together in the Super Bowl. And uh, they're sitting on um, the team's like one or two yard line. And they're trying to play for the conversion. And so the coach calls a play. He says, here's what we're going to do. I want, uh, I want the quarterback to fake a handoff to, the, to um, my nose guard, to the guy right here, fake his handoff, and we know the line is going to pile in. And it's going to open a gap so one of my corner guards can run the ball around because that's what they're really going to do. They're going to fake a handoff and then run around the side, the, the gap that's left. So the way that happens in football, as you all would know better than I do, the way that happens in football, it happened exactly like the coach called the play. They call the play. They fake the handoff. The whole team on the opposing side, the whole def- defensive line, falls on that nose guard. And the, the man that was actually supposed to run the ball just has a wide open gap. And as the story was told to me, he said a grandma could have run through the gap that was left. But the point was made by the, by the guy that ran the ball, right? So the whole team, it's the winning point. The game is tied up. It's the winning point. And the whole team hoists the the guy that that made the run to their shoulders. They're super excited. Everybody's cheering and all happy except one man. And he's the man that the whole defensive line just piled onto. And as the story is told, that man is over to one side, one corner of, of the screen. But you can see him there, and you see him watching the celebration and you can probably tell his bones are aching from the hit he just take, took. You see him just watch. see him take his football helmet off. Throw it down. Like, what's the point, you know? But then you see over in the other corner, you see the coach. And his arms are crossed. And he's not watching the celebration at all. He's watching the guy that took the hit. And when he catches his eye, he just does this. When I heard that story, it just touched my heart, and this is why. It was a reminder to me that my father sees in secret. You know, there's parts of my story, I'm a pretty transparent guy, and there's parts of my story that you all know, but there's a lot of my story that that no one would ever know. And even if I told you, you still don't know. You don't know what it's like to be inside of me, to be the person that took the hit. But I'm not living for you all. I'm not living for your concern and your approval. I'm doing my best to live for my father and his approval. Because he sees in secret. You know, if you're living for the approval of people, not only is it going to determine the direction of your life, but it's also going to be deeply discouraging because there are way too many times when people just don't pay attention to us. People aren't even thinking of us. And we want someone to think of us. But God is thinking of us. He's watching you. He's paying attention to you. And you know what the scripture goes on to say in this passage? It's not just that God sees. What does it say about that? It says, our father sees in secret and he will reward you openly. It's not just going to be a quiet thumbs up over in one corner of the screen that probably 90% of the fans never even saw. He says, our Father will reward us openly. And as this was described as the, 
the teacher was dealing, the resource was dealing with this passage, he said, the roof over our house is the all-seeing eye of God. The foundation, our cornerstone is Christ and his righteousness. But then the other blocks, they're little safes. And they are our rewards. We, we feel kind of, kind of a little nervous about that. Like, Brother Martin, we don't, we don't talk about rewards. We should just be good for the sake of being good. Do you know the Bible doesn't actually say that? Jesus talks over and over and over again about rewards, but he talks about heavenly rewards. And Jesus makes it clear that we should live with our eyes on the reward, on the prize. Now, the question is whether that prize fits with the behavior. So, for instance, some people, they think about rewards for righteousness like some people would think about money for love. Like those two things don't go together, right? Money is not the correct reward for love. So if a man tries to love a woman hoping she'll give him some money, that's messed up. The correct reward for love, at least for love that is, that is uh, um, mutual love, is marriage. Romantic love leads to marriage. And when Jesus speaks to us about heavenly rewards, those rewards are... They fit with that righteousness. In fact, part of what God is trying to bring us to is a moment where our hearts are longing for the rewards of righteousness. Where our hearts are so set on heavenly rewards and on that moment when we see God and we are rewarded openly that the rewards and trinkets of this world don't even matter to us because our minds have been set on the things of God. God sees, God rewards. People see, and if we're living for people, and if we're living for people's approval, what Jesus is basically saying to us here is that we're actually playing a whole different game. And when we set the terms of the game on the approval of other people, it's going to leave us frustrated. It's going to leave us enslaved. It's going to leave us disappointed and can even lead to our damnation. But if we set the terms in our own hearts, of our own lives, to be the rewards that God will give us, then it leads to happiness and peace and joy and fulfillment and finally to a heavenly reward. Those are the two paths that God is laying out for us. And the concern is, are we really paying close enough attention to our own motives and our own heart that we know we're living not for this world and for these rewards, but we're living for the reward that Jesus described. What does he say? The day will come when if we're living for heaven's rewards, we say, well done. We hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. Jesus says, when you give, you should give in such a way, you, your right hand doesn't even know what your left hand is doing. And they said the beautiful illustration of that is, is when Jesus gives the parable of those he says, Enter into the joy of your reward. I was hungry, you gave me food. I was thirsty, you gave me to drink. I was in prison, you visited me. I was sick and you ministered to me. And they said, we never did any of those things, Lord. And he says, when you did it to the least of these, you did it to me. In other words, they were unaware that they were even doing what they were doing because they made it such a pattern of their life. Their minds were fixed on God and on his rewards. And so they were more concerned with pleasing him than pleasing anyone else. May God help us to live that kind of life, to live a life 
that pleases God, a life that's fixed on serving Him, a life that's fixed on heaven's rewards. Amen. If I understand faith, it's not counting on me. It's the hope and assurance of what I can see. It's the daily relying on Jesus to be providing more grace faithfully. Further proving his great love for me with grace for the Oh